0: Good morning, everybody. And thank you for joining us for another SACPA session. Um, during this time of so, time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we have with us Dr. Simon Sweeney from York um, in the UK on the topic of Brexit, no hiding place for the UK government. Dr. Simon Sweeney is a senior lecturer in international political economy and business at the University of York Management School in the UK. He's the author of Europe, the state of globalization. His PhD was on EU security and defense policy between 2006 and 2013. He served as the UK Bologna expert, sponsored by the European Commission. His research interests are European integration and EU security and defence policy. He has published in books and journals on European integration, EU security and defence and on various aspects of pedagogy. He began his career in the English language teaching and speaks several languages. He has worked at Sheffield Business School at Sheffield Hallam University and at the York St. John's University. In 2006, he was awarded a National Teaching Fellowship by the UK Higher Education Academy. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Sweeney, and we look forward to your talk.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for your generous introduction and most of all, thank you for inviting me to talk to SACPA on a subject which I have to confess has been filling all my available bandwidth for many years now, i.e. the issue of UK relations with the European Union. I designed this talk actually a couple of days ago and sent the slides over to uh, Annalisa, but it's extraordinary how we're actually dealing with something which is very much a moving feast And if, like me, you were a kind of Brexit obsessive, you would be spinning because of the continuing outpouring of news around this process. Although I have to say a curious thing, it's only the real obsessives like me who are paying a great deal of attention. The reality is that the government in the UK is able to take advantage of the public bandwidth being restricted and taken over by the issue of coronavirus. So 2020 has kind of slipped by, and this negotiation, as it's called, between the UK and the European Union that's been going on for uh, almost 11 months, Um, in other words, the negotiation of the ultimate relationship in terms of trade between the EU and the UK. This negotiation has been going on for almost 11 months. In fact, I think there's 23 days of negotiating time left, and that would include negotiating on Christmas Day, which even I think is pretty unlikely, uh, even even where the, the situation has become so critical. So the, the bizarre thing is that every day there seems to be either no news at all or a little bit of news about this negotiation and today and yesterday the mood has turned pretty dark actually as if there's not going to be an agreement and and the 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 relations between the two sides are are certainly not reassuring at this point but i don't know of any um european union expert or or observer of this process who wants to stand up and say what the outcome is going to be on the 1st of January 2021. It's very, very uncertain. However, um, um, if, if, and Lisa, you could show the second slide, right? The second slide uh, is headed, no hiding place for the UK government. It's become a little bit of a no hiding place for anybody at the moment because eventually uh we will all stand revealed as to what has become the consequences of these 11 months of negotiation it's been it's been described as a failure of statecraft if there is no deal but my my perception is that the failure of statecraft is mostly on the UK side, because it was the UK that precipitated Brexit. The European Union didn't want Brexit. The European Union wasn't the one that decided that we should have a referendum on Brexit on the 23rd of June back in 2016. And my response to that referendum issue and the question is, ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. Referendums are a high-risk instrument in uh political circles and and we're living the consequences of a very narrow uh, advantage to the leave side in that referendum 1.4 million was the difference in in votes for leave as opposed to the votes for remain so what i'm going to do in in the next few minutes is is discuss certain aspects of of the the british government's position its aspiration to be a global player global britain as they term it i will speak about the potential future relations between the uk and the eu i will mention the impact of the biden presidency that we look forward to and discuss something of the uk relationship with uh, uk uh, sorry the, the the relationship with the united states but also with um, what used to be NAFTA, the US-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. And I will talk about security and defence, which is really my area of, of particular interest. Um, in conclusion, I will be saying that rather than get Brexit done, which was the big slogan of the 19, 2019 election, getting Brexit done is not going to happen. It's it's going to be an ongoing rather fractious negotiation that could last um, for many years, actually, while the UK tries to establish a relationship with what has been its largest trading partner uh, for the last 46 years. It's not possible to simply break that away and imagine that there's some brave new world waiting for us in terms of global Britain. So next slide, Annalisa um we've had five years of continual rhetoric from inside the uk about taking back control even they need us more than we need them in other words the negotiation will be pretty straightforward we hold all the cards has been another oft repeated refrain by a prominent leave campaigner uh there's no downside to brexit only a considerable upside Easiest trade deal in history, frictionless trade. That was the former Prime Minister uh, Theresa May who promised frictionless trade. Well, we know where that went. She was replaced by Boris Johnson. Uh, Brexit means Brexit was another uh, claim by Theresa May, which made very little sense to anybody, probably not even to herself. The aspiration for global Britain I've already mentioned and that too actually makes not a lot of sense when you consider the, the clumsy diplomacy that the UK has been deploying and the fact that within the EU, the United Kingdom has an existing free trade or virtually free trade relationship with 65 countries around the world. But as we leave the EU, those relationships fall and have to be replaced with bilateral relationships. And of course, we recently agreed a bilateral relationship with Canada, but it's actually a less favorable bilateral relationship than the one that we had before uh, uh, through the European Union's agreement already established with Canada. So it's hard to see the advantage. Um, Johnson said only in October this year, deal or no deal, the UK will prosper mightily. Well, the man certainly cannot be accused of lacking in optimism. He's also been seeking what he calls, just in case the negotiations don't bring the free trade Canada style agreement that he's been asking for, if we don't get that Canada style arrangement, we'll have an Australia type deal. And that would be acceptable. He says, but in an Australia type deal actually is World Trade Organization terms, and it does mean tariffs, it does mean cus- customs checks. It would be a hammer blow to UK manufacturing. Why have the negotiations ended up being. Next slide, please, said Why have the negotiations uh, run into the sand in the way that I've been describing? Well, in a way, they always had to because the interest of the UK has been to take back control, in other words, to regain sovereignty from the European Union. It's always perceived EU membership to be a loss of sovereignty rather than a pooling or a sharing of sovereignty between member states. So if the UK takes a position which is 100% sovereigntist, in other words, we need to absolute control over our political economy and the european union for its side wants to defend the integrity of its single market it's very hard to find a space in the middle ground between those two positions and in fact the uk prime minister theresa may indicated in 2017 in january 2017 red lines for the uk's negotiating position control of borders, to leave the single market, to leave the customs union, and to have no jurisdiction of the EU Court of Justice. Well, Canada in entering a trade agreement with the European Union is indirectly subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in terms of exports that Canada delivers to the European Union. They must meet with certain standards that are decreed by European law. Next slide. What are the prospects for a deal now? Few experts, as I've already said, want to say even 23 days from the ultimate Brexit day. Let me just fill in there. We did leave the European Union on the 30th of January, Um, 31st of January 2020 what we are now in is an 11 month transition period after which we no longer abide by EU law and we're outside the single market few experts want to say whether at the end of this transition period there will be a trade deal or there won't in other words wto if there is a deal everybody does agree that it'll be very thin at the very most it will cover import and export of goods and have nothing to do with services nothing to do with financial services uh very little, if anything, to do with internal security. It'll have nothing to do with external security and defense. It'll have nothing to do with UK access to various agencies that the EU is responsible for. It'll only be on trade. The sticking points during these negotiations have been primarily three things. Fish, 0.1% of the UK economy and very little more for the whole EU economy too state aid and governance in other words how a future relationship should be uh, monitored and assessed according to uh, compliance the eu27 has mostly remained united and resolute in its commitment to defending the single market the uk under may and now under johnson has consistently tried to peel off certain member states to uh, position more amenable to the demands of the UK. And that hasn't happened because the EU 27 has been very strongly united on this issue. Um, As I've said, the UK regards sovereignty as its absolute priority. But what Prime Minister Johnson has done since since he became leader, actually in uh, the summer of last year, is he's constructed a cabinet around hard sovereigntists and his most loyal supporters. This has left very little room for compromise. And the prospects I would say today, on the 8th of December, are very, very poor. Next slide. The um, situation today includes a number of Additional problems, we might say, the UK has put before its parliament something called the, the, uh, sorry, the internal market bill. The slide says single. That's a mistake. You should say the internal market bill. Now, inside this internal market bill are provisions to uh, protect the um, Good Friday agreement between the Dublin government, the London government and authorities in Northern Ireland. Uh, the provisions are that there should be a monitoring of trade between Britain and Northern Ireland, which means that you will not need a hard border on the island of Ireland. This was agreed to in the withdrawal agreement by the Johnson government In 2019, and within a few weeks of signing that agreement, Johnson reneged on it and said that he wanted to take out the provision for there being checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. And this has been widely condemned as a breaking of international law. Now, today, the British government has said. We won't take out these. Uh, sorry, we will put back these provisions, we won't break international law, and has then said into the bargain, okay, now that we're not going to break international law, you must give us what we want in terms of the negotiation. That's quite an astonishing position to take. Is this what modern diplomacy has been reduced to? This is like me going to your house and saying, okay, listen, I'm going to seal everything in your house and destroy the whole interior. But I won't do that if you just put your valuable stuff outside on the doorstep so I can walk away with it. This is, is this diplomacy? This is damaging UK reputation worldwide. Apart from the fact that most of our trading partners across the world, including Canada, the USA, Japan, South Korea have said, why are you doing this? This leaving the single European market is crazy. They even said that about having the referendum in the first place industry that has invested here from Japan and from Europe and from the USA, industry has pleaded with the UK not to do this, leave the single market. But the government is apparently dead set on this issue of sovereignty, which will mean leaving the single European market. Um, So we've got a presidency now, we're looking forward to presidency under Joe Biden and we say goodbye to the Trump presidency. Let it be understood in the UK that the Biden presidency will not be a great friend to the UK if we trash those clauses in the withdrawal agreement that protect the integrity of uh, the manner of withdrawal around the issue of the Irish border. If there's any threat to the good... Friday Agreement, which has been in existence since 1998, if there's any threat to that, a US president, particularly uh, of, 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 of a democratic persuasion, will will have very little truck with doing the UK any favors. It's, a, it's an international treaty that the UK is threatening to break. Um, and Nancy Pelosi also indicated that if the UK persisted with its threats, uh, to to introduce this internal market bill that would damage the withdrawal agreement uh, there, there could be no trade deal certainly no favorable trade deal uh, with the with the uk um, i should also say that the united um, position of the european union is unsurprising given their commitment to their own single market they also have let it be said, a host of other concerns that they would rather focus on. Uh, the EU is far from perfect, has multiple issues around the integrity of the Eurozone and around a, its own position on law and order, certain recalcitrant member states who are threatening the internal stability of the union uh, with, with, with nationalist governments of a nationalist persuasion and antipathy to the founding values of the union and um, the threat by Poland and Hungary to derail the already agreed uh, European Union budget for the multi-annual period 2021-2027. Next slide.
0: Can I just interrupt for a minute? We're having having some audio issues. Um, Skype's a bit hiccupy, and I wonder if there's a chance Simon that you could turn off your video in order to get a better audio connection
1: um,
0: there should be a little video button and you can just mute your video yeah little camera button
1: so I've done that that might help let's, let's ho- see
0: okay and okay
1: you go to, the, go to the next slide which is headed security concerns
0: I have done yeah
1: so, so this slide says that under the existing relate under the existing single market relationship, as a member of the European Union, the UK shares with the European Union twenty seven members very close cooperation in policing, in fighting terrorism, shared intelligence, combating organised crime, which includes the smuggling of drugs the smuggling of arms, pornography, trafficking of all kinds, including child trafficking, and cybersecurity. How fundamental is this? A government's first responsibility is to protect the security of its citizens, and we are endangering that by stepping outside of EU security protocols. There are a number of agencies, Europol and Eurojust, which pertain to this, uh, this area of cooperation. Eurojust includes the sharing of sentencing information and criminal records. Europol covers all kinds of things in, uh, concerning the prosecution of crime. The Schengen information system is a criminal records database which allows for the sharing of information between member states police. There's the sharing of DNA data uh, relating to uh, the prosecution of crime. Passenger name records, a fundamental element in combating international terrorism and other crime. The European arrest warrant, which is, 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 is active and important for all member states and has been widely utilized by the, Euro- uh, by the United Kingdom. All these things are threatened. Next slide is on defense and security. The UK is a participant in the European Union's common security and defence policy. Of course, the major defence organisation to which we and most EU members are a party is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, a membership of which we share with Canada. But EU common security and defence policy covers a range of structures to which British participation could be extremely important. Permanent structured cooperation, for example, is about engaging in multinational projects to develop defence capability. The European Defence Fund is a pot of money provided under the auspices of the European Commission to support defence research. The impact on Franco-British or French-British defence cooperation should also not be uh, misunderstood or or corrupted in any way. Britain's most important defence partner is probably France together with the United States but that close relationship that we have with France will be undermined by any toxicity or bad blood that develops in other fields, such as uh, those surrounding this negotiation of our future relationship with the European Union. Therefore, any negativity in terms of the impact on uh, the security relationship, will rebound and have an impact on NATO and the future European dimension of NATO capability. The UK has already lost its position as a participant in the military encryption elements of the Galileo satellite system, which is the EU's equivalent to the USA's GPS. There is no question that any deterioration in the UK-EU security partnership will also do damage to the potential development of a stronger European Union military industrial base. If the British government does not wish to partner EU countries such as France and Germany and Italy in this uh, pursuit of uh, military industrial capability, the the UK will increasingly become just a, a panel beater for US defense manufacturing interests. And not only that, but subject to uh, uh, dictates from the Pentagon and from Washington as to the position that the UK should take in defense and security matters. And that's not a healthy relationship. And I think we've seen enough in history in recent years to bear out that uh, suggestion. The next slide, please. So the slogan was to get Brexit done. The slogan was to take back control. In reality, so far, nothing has been determined, and certainly nothing will. Whatever comes out in the next 23 days will be a thin deal, if it's a deal at all. So we're entering into a new period of endless argument, endless arbitration and dispute. We might achieve various sectoral agreements. The idea of a comprehensive free trade agreement is in my opinion for the birds. There has been and will continue to be a considerable loss of goodwill. The European Union may regard us historically as having been something of an awkward partner, but that's actually in many ways a misreading. The UK has been an integral part of the European Union since our accession in 1973. It was in the 1980s that a UK commissioner, Lord Cofield, sent to Brussels by Margaret Thatcher, no less, who drew up the original blueprint for the single European market, which the UK now wants to step away from. This is quite astonishing. There seems to, be, seems to me to be absolutely no doubt that Margaret Thatcher, doyen of the European research group of most dedicated anti-Europeans in the contemporary Conservative Party, Margaret Thatcher would not support Britain leaving the single European market, which in many ways was a British creation, if I may make so bold as to say something quite so British. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to see is not only a lot of goodwill and a sheer amazement about the path that the UK has taken, But we will also inflict damage on the UK's exporters, particularly in manufacturing. They will see a dramatic increase in costs, a massive increase in bureaucracy. One of the cries of the Leave campaign was that we would get rid of red tape, red tape, which basically is there to protect the environment and to protect citizens from um, faulty trade and and, uh, consumer goods that are bad for us and to protect labor, that's red tape. Hmm. There is no such thing as free trade, actually. All trade is governed by agreements and all agreements contain conditions. And in any civilized society, there will be regulations. There are therefore huge risks to consumers if the British decide to step away from consumer protection currently uh, Uh, overseen by European Union law. There will be rising prices, of course, because of the impact of a fall in sterling, already declined 12% against the euro since the referendum in 2016. There has been a massive fall-off in foreign direct investment. We may expect further decrease in foreign direct investment. We may even expect, as Toyota said only yesterday, that the imposition of tariffs would destroy the margins on their exports. So their factories, they have two in the UK, their factories here would probably close. I don't even know why they bothered to put in the adverb probably. They will close because if you take 10% away, you destroy that margin. What is the value in those companies remaining here? when they will be paying 5% tariffs on the import of components that come from other European states. And they will pay 10% tariffs on the export of the finished vehicle. The typical vehicle manufactured in the UK or anywhere else in the world contains 30,000 components. We live in an era of global production, components that cross borders time and time again during a manufacturing process. It is lunacy to put our manufacturing sector through this. And the same sort of impact will apply to pharmaceuticals. And in terms of fresh food imports, imports there will be delays at borders. There will be queues. There will be increased bureaucracy. There will be form filling. There will be a new regime that importers and exporters have to pay attention to. Last week, every business in Britain received a letter from the Department for Business, Energy, and Strategic Industry. Sorry, I got that wrong. The Department for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. Now, I actually laughed when I saw this. A Department for Industrial Strategy that wants to cut off our free movement, of goods and services into the European Union, where go 40% of our exports, that's manufactured exports. It's perfectly astonishing. Anyway, this letter I was saying, this letter told every business in the UK to prepare for change on the 1st of January 2021, change that might happen. Go onto the government website and look at what, might happen. It even included, you might need visas to visit another EU country. This is astonishing. We haven't needed visas to visit the EU since 1973 or way before. It's, it's hard to see any benefits from this process. And the Office for Budget Responsibility has indicated there will be a six billion pound hit to the UK economy over 15 years a hit of between one5 and 2% per annum. No hiding place, I'm afraid. That's the end of my presentation. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Simon. We did have some audio issues right at the beginning, but I think having you turn off your video really helped um, with the audio. um, That's the feedback I'm getting. So I'm just gonna leave the slide up your first slide. Um, And um, the question, there's quite a few questions coming in. Um, I'm going to ask with a question on my own, if that's possible. How is this affecting um, immigration or or all those people that are now living in Britain that are EU citizens or all the British living in the EU? How is that affecting and implicating that?
1: They are affected because until now, we have uh, been able to take advantage of um, freedom of movement. So there's been no interruption to uh, the wishes of individuals to travel throughout the European Union and to work throughout the European Union, to set up residence in the European Union, to find a business in the European Union. All these things have been freely open to UK citizens. They're no longer open once we leave the single market. Um, So that's the first downside. The second is for those who are already here, EU citizens that are already here, and there were, I think, in 2016, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but uh, I think around 2.8 million and a number of those, I don't have the figures, but a number have already left. Now, many of these people worked in low paid sectors of the UK economy. They, they worked in horticulture, they worked in agriculture, they worked in food production, they worked in social care, uh, and they worked in the sort of low end jobs in the health service, as well as many others working in high end jobs. In, in 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 the health service. But many of those on low wages have already left because of the decline in the value of sterling made their working in the UK less advantageous. And the UK is the UK currency, the sterling, has devalued not only against the euro but also, for example, against the Polish zloty and the Turkish lira since the referendum. Um, And this is likely to be a problem exacerbated by the end of the the transition period that we're now in. So many left, many haven't left. And those who decided to stay, many for employment reasons, for example, in my field in in academia um, or in the health service in better paid positions. uh, Many of these have applied for UK citizenship and have to go through a sort of crazy test to get citizenship. A crazy test, which depends upon the ability to answer a lot of rather stupid questions. I'm almost proud to say I did take the test and I failed it. Can you imagine that? I actually <laughs> failed the test. You had to get 18 questions right out of 24 and I only got 17 right. Um, you know, it, it's perfectly farcical. There was a kind of middle position of permanent status that you could apply for permanent status. You had to produce a massive documentation to prove you'd been here and paid taxes over a period of time. Uh, So if you were here and not paying taxes, perhaps because you were somebody's partner and your partner was going out to work uh, and you didn't have an employment record, your gaining permanent residence status is very, very difficult. And I I have a friend... from Spain, who had exactly that problem. He, he had not had regular employment while here as a father of four children. So it's, it's it's been a monstrous process. And for those British citizens living in continental Europe, this has also been a time of great anxiety, insecure about their own access to healthcare, for example, which has been a given. It's not been a complicated... The thing for British people traveling in Europe, even temporarily, just for holiday or for work, you always had something called the European Health Identity Card, which guaranteed you immediate treatment in the public health system of whichever member state you were in as a visitor. And any costs could be reclaimed by, by the health service of that country against the British National Health Service. In many cases that didn't happen. It was regarded as a quid pro quo. Uh, The health service provision would be common to all.
0: Okay, we've got quite a few questions lined up. Um, The first question is from Laurie Schultz. I've made I may have missed this during the audio issues, but what is the status of the custom border with Ireland? Is it still proposed to be down the middle of the Irish Sea and will this maintain peace?
1: Yeah, this is the issue in the internal market bill. The withdrawal agreement hailed by Prime Minister Johnson as a great deal. The withdrawal agreement included this provision that there should be customs checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. Since that agreement was passed into international law in a treaty, the withdrawal agreement, the British government has reneged on it, at least by threatening to take out the clauses that pertain to the customs checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. If there are no customs checks between Britain and Northern Ireland, that places a pressure on the European Union under WTO rules to check goods coming across the Northern Irish-Irish border, because there could be no guarantee that those goods coming into the European Union are in alignment with European Union rules and stipulations under single market law. There could, for example, be a backdoor route into the European Union for goods imported from third countries that have passed through Britain into Northern Ireland and then into the European Union without any tariffs being levied against them. And that could contravene WTO law. Therefore, the European Union and Britain under WTO rules would be obliged to monitor that border. And therefore you have the risk of a hard border emerging on the island of Ireland. Any kind of infrastructure in Ireland on that border will be regarded as the imposition of a hard border. And the historical implications of that, if we take into account the, the very recent history of the Irish Troubles, it's a frightening prospect.
0: Okay. Uh, Laurie Schultz's second question. Uh, Do you see Scotland moving to separation again?
1: Very complicated question. Uh, I would be reluctant to be very definitive on this. I don't know the answer. Certainly, the Scottish National Party has seen a big increase in its apparent levels of support since the referendum. And the of the British government to Scottish concerns has been um, very negative. And that in itself has made the cause of Scottish nationalism more attractive to voters who in 2014 may have supported the maintenance of the union, i.e. the United Kingdom. So there is certainly high risk in this. Now, my own view is that when we delve into the economics of scottish separation from england and the destination of much of scottish export it gets very complicated and the issue of currency is super complicated so i'm not going to predict what will happen there in the heat of heaven forbid another referendum <laughs> i'm right. not i'm not in favor of referendums as you probably guess <laughs>
0: Okay, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. How do you see the British making out trading with the US under a Biden administration versus Trump?
1: Good good question. The, there's no doubt there was a a kind of kinship or a kind of um, meeting of minds between President Trump and Prime Minister Johnson. In many ways, they're in my view rather similar personalities and and a rather manichaean view of the world in people who are with us or people who are against us and they saw each other as as partners i think in a in a kind of nationalist crusade uh rather in opposition to multilateralism or the consensus politics epitomized by the united nations or the european union so Trump probably, sorry, Johnson probably anticipated an easier ride in a free trade relationship with uh, an America under under Trump than under Biden, and may have been disappointed. We don't know, but he may have been disappointed that Biden uh, is now present elect. Um, in reality, though, I don't think it makes a great deal of difference because. The United States is not going to do the UK any big favours in a bilateral trade agreement. Um, the United States is interested in selling pharmaceutical products into the British national health system. Um, the United States is interested in the further privatisation of health service provision in the UK. Uh, the US agricultural sector would be looking to export um poultry products and other meats into the rather sizable UK market. And I don't think they'd be doing the UK too many favours, whether it's under Trump or under Biden. So I'm not a great optimist simply because um, I don't think the, the British have cause for optimism, particularly with regard to a bilateral trade agreement with the USA, because we're a much smaller partner. We don't have, you know, this nonsense about being an equal partner with the EU. We wouldn't be an equal partner with the USA, USA either.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Trevor Page. Brexit has diminished Britain's standing in the world. How do you see the effects of this at the UN and NATO? And where do you see its position with its traditional allies vis-à-vis China? China?
1: Yeah, that's that's a big question, Trevor. Um, With regard to the UN, I don't think it'll make any difference. Um, The UN is comprised of uh, individual members. It's not dependent upon uh, membership of a group. However, group participation probably does lend weight to the views of small states. So, for example, Denmark or Ireland or Slovakia feel stronger in the UN because they're members of the European Union, even though the European Union is not a member of the UN. So, You could argue that um, for small states, EU membership is particularly strong. For the UK, which is a medium-sized state, and it's a member of the UN Security Council, and not only that, but a permanent member, I don't think it's going to make a great deal of difference. Um, With regard to NATO... Likewise, it probably won't make a huge difference because we are the second largest contributor to NATO in financial terms and in military hardware terms. Uh, There's no doubt that the competence and capability of UK armed forces is respected among NATO members. Um, However, I did indicate in my presentation that UK military, industrial, and equipment capability will be damaged by not making common cause in a more direct way with continental European manufacturing and the provision of military capability to the organization to which we're all members, NATO. And... So it's in to not uh, fully participating in the European arm of NATO. Um, it's important, I believe, for the European arm of NATO to build European strategic autonomy, because we cannot always rely on Uncle Sam to come and rescue us when things get bad over here on the other side of the pond.
0: And I think his second question was, and where do you see its position with the traditional allies vis-a-vis China?
1: This is also an an extremely important problem and question for the 21st century, where we see China as a rising power, as I mentioned, I think in my talk, a, a mercantilist power that is interested in expanding Chinese economic strength in order to develop its political strength. And we've seen uh, recently uh, the signing of um, the, the regional economic cooperation uh, between the 10 members of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, 10 members of ASEAN have joined with China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand in a new trade pact, there is no question that under Xi Jinping, China is not going to do any of these things, joining new trade alliances and expanding its Belt Road Initiative, for example, except for Chinese increased hegemony, increased power over its region and beyond. China is the rising, power of this century and it's a dictatorship it's run by uh, a single party state it is a single party state and it has a completely different set of values and we look at the uh, treatment of minorities in china or the disputes over hong kong or over tibet or over the uyghur uh, th- these are things that um the international community needs to stand up and be counted over. And by absenting itself from the European Union, I don't think the United Kingdom enhances its voice in that common cause of um, democratic countries against the um, undesirable traits of the current Chinese administration and the direction of travel where uh, Chinese uh, authoritarianism and increased um, potentially military military threat to its region and and beyond it''s it's, a, it's one of the big questions. I don't think it's the big question of the 21st century, but it's certainly one of them. And since I've touched on it, the big question is climate change and and the European Union and uh, the Americas across the piece have to stand up and be counted in response to the threat of climate change. China will listen on this question. China will listen. And they're more likely to listen to um, common cause by states that recognize the threat. And I think Britain is one of those states, but our contribution to global emissions and, and, uh, and uh, um, damage from fossil fuel is terribly small. But that doesn't alter the fact that our responsibility is massive.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Bev Mundo. Do you believe there was a international plan to create Brexit to undermine the UK as well as the EU? And if so, who might these parties be?
1: So, <laughs> I wonder, is this... I don't know that there, there are people who believe that there's some kind of international finance grouping behind this uh, Brexit movement uh, that some of the major players in the leave campaign stand to gain financially from Brexit The answer is I don't know I don't know. You'll have to ask somebody else who knows about the dark web or is better acquainted with the issues of tax evasion. The the British are past masters of this, I know. Um, We we hold the flag over many international uh, tax havens. Uh, If you want to do something about problems in the world, one thing that we could all do is do away with tax havens. But there is a danger that Brexit turns the UK into the largest, most powerful, most influential, and in some ways, most attractive tax haven. Mm. That really is a very, very dark scenario that I've just touched upon. I hope it doesn't happen. But there are people who think that the game may end up that way and that there is some kind of uh, some kind of traction behind letting that happen. But I, I, I don't want to be definitive on it.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What are the demographics of the remainders? If if younger than those in government now, will they change course in UK-EU relationships in due course?
1: Hard to know, Laurie, if, if that's true. I, I think if we were... Rerun the referendum this week, the result might be different, but it wouldn't be substantially different. Mm-hmm. Even in spite of all the arguments that we've had, there's been little movement really. And there are people who voted Remain who somehow have bought into the idea that the European Union is punishing us by not giving us what we want. Let's remember that the level of political education is, without being too patronising to my compatriots, the level of political education is rather low uh, across great swathes of the population. And the day after the referendum, the internet in the UK was practically jammed with people asking, what is the European Union? So take that into account, that people's understanding of these issues is, is, is pretty low. So I've also mentioned previously the lack of bandwidth available to the average person to take into account everything that's been going on with coronavirus and at the same time remain focused on what is happening with with Brexit. Now, coronavirus may affect us until we get a vaccine rolled out and get most of the population vaccinated in the hope that it relieves us, relieves us of the ongoing threat from coronavirus. But um, Brexit is not like that. Brexit is going to have an impact over several years, decades into the future, perhaps. So um, the Office for Business Responsibility and the Bank of England, the governor of the Bank of England, recently said that Brexit was going to be a bigger hit to the UK economy than coronavirus. That certainly doesn't surprise me. But I'm not convinced that any of this is sufficient to produce a great groundswell of regret or uh, um, you know, we've got to have another referendum, for example. I think that ship has sailed. We're not members and and we're sailing out over the, I'm not going to say over the cliff. Okay, I said it. We're sailing out over the cliff.
0: Okay. Um, I guess our next question is from Cheryl Bradley, kind of... Um touches a little bit on the previous question. Do you foresee in your lifetime an attempt by Britain to get back into the EU, perhaps after the next British national election?
1: I'm, I'm going to have to look for my crystal ball on this one. <laughs> um, after the next election, I couldn't even predict the outcome of the next election. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's so hard to imagine Um, it does relate to the last question. We also don't know the state of the European Union going forward. The the world economy and the political economy is in a situation of great turmoil. I mean, we don't know what will happen with the presidential elections in the United States in 2024. We don't know how successful the uh, Biden administration will be in correcting some of the uh, atmospherics Around uh, the U.S. relations with the rest of the world, we hope that those atmosphere are going to greatly improve. We expect that they will, but let's see. Um, okay. It's it's politics is so so much in a state of churn, and I've already mentioned the the rise of China. Um, the future for the European Union remains quite uncertain, it faces a lot of its own problems, which is why Brexit has been a very unwelcome distraction.
0: Okay, Um, our next question comes from uh, Henning Mendel. What percentage of the British population can be expected to actually benefit from Brexit?
1: Oh, I, I... I really don't know the answer to that question. Who can benefit? Certain people with um, particular financial interests that manage to find capital gains from investments. Um, Well, that's gonna be a very small percentage. Uh, It seems to me that very rich people are very good at maintaining their wealth. So you could say that very rich people are gonna do well, because they always do. They can take advantage of a low tax regime, even a lower tax regime. Um, But we're speaking of a very small percentage of people, I'm afraid. People who lose their jobs, people who who lose their employment uh, potential. Research is gonna be damaged. I I don't know, I think the number is very small.
0: Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. The EU has been painted as the, in quotation, oppressor. Are there adjustments that are needed to level the playing field?
1: Yeah, um, the EU has indeed been painted as the oppressor because I used the word atmospherics in a previous question. The atmospherics around uh, governance in general in the UK are that bureaucracy is a bad thing, red tape is a bad thing, and I already said red tape is there to protect consumers, to protect workers, and to protect the environment. But there is a kind of given that somehow the UK is a victim of control emanating from Brussels, as if Brussels is a kind of hydra that just... Sucks the life out of everybody with whom it comes into contact. Uh, in reality, the European Union is an intergovernmental organisation where decisions are made by governments, and uh, law is, is 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 made through um, a negotiation process, but also by technocrats who determine the details of things like the safety of products or laws around trade that the average citizen has no interest in and no knowledge of. And so technocratic governance is actually part of modern society. And, you know, this was something understood by Max Weber uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, that that bureaucracy is actually an indicator of being an advanced society. But, It's not understood like that in the UK where instead of seeing the European Union as a regulatory organization, and that's what it is, it's seen as an oppressor. But if you drill down into how and why it's perceived like that, we can blame the media. We can blame the politicians. For example, when things go well, governments always claim the credit. They, They don't say things are going well because of the international organizations that we're a member of and it's beneficial to us to be a member of that organization they don't say things are going well because our trade is going well and it depends on people at the other end of the trade process that are buying our stuff they simply claim the credit for themselves and that's an unreality that probably applies to all, dem- all democracies
0: okay um- Simon, we have three more questions left, but I'm keenly aware that the hour is over. What is your time? Are you able to take three more questions?
1: I am able to take three more questions. I'm very happy
0: to. Thank Thank, you. Thank you. Um, Our next question comes from um, Knut Peterson. We talk about Scotland wanting to remain in the EU. What is the sentiment in Wales?
1: Wales voted by the slimmest of margins to leave. In other words, there was a small majority for leave in the Welsh Principality. However, it's been suggested that that small majority comprised English people who had moved into Wales. (laughs) So if you took those away, Wales might well have voted to remain and the politics of that would have looked really bad because it would have said okay we have got to leave Result, but three parts of the so-called united kingdom chose the opposite road <laughs> that would that would play really badly even worse than the reality that scotland overwhelmingly voted to remain and northern ireland did by some margin too so you know how is it now in wales the, there is considerable um, sense that in Wales the issues are better understood and there is a sense of uh, this isn't good for for Wales so as to the future of the UK we've already mentioned Scotland Um, Northern Ireland is another danger area for the uh, um, sense of maintaining the title United Kingdom
0: So um, I'm going to read the next, the last two questions out because they're kind of, um, they work on each other. So Beth Mandel's question is, what threat to democracy does Brexit pose to the UK? To which Mark Goodall says, further further to that question, do you think that Russia possibly... Took steps to influence the referendum in order to destabilize the UK. Seems Russia did this to Trump's election against Clinton.
1: Yes. Uh, Interestingly, the uh, British government was very, very shady about speaking out on whether there had been Russian interference. In fact, it, it reported an inquiry into. Russian interference by saying that there had been, I'm sorry, I should rephrase that. It reported an inquiry into the conduct of the Leave campaign in which it concluded there was no evidence of Russian influence or interference in the referendum campaign and the ensuing result. However, it didn't look for evidence of Russian interference. So in other words, the inquiry didn't find what it didn't look for. And there is widespread suspicion that indeed there was Russian interference in the campaign and the referendum. Um, but I'm not party to the to the documents and we may not know for 30 years. Under secrecy laws, we're not allowed to know. Um, threats to democracy in the UK, I do believe that democracy is threatened in the UK. I think for many years I've agitated that the voting system in the UK is uh, ineffective and that the influence of the media is unchecked and the capacity of government to manipulate and pressure uh Aspects of the media, such as the BBC, to reduce the um, role of the BBC away from being inquisitorial and research oriented and really um, challenging of politicians who make certain claims. The BBC has tended towards balance in its arguments. So for years in the UK, the issue over climate change, for example, was distorted by the insistence on the part of the BBC to give two perspectives, two points of view. So the scientists would say one thing, and then some failed politician from previous a previous government would come on and say, "Climate change—it's just a theory." And 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 the British government, the British population tended to go with this. We were very slow to accept the reality of climate change because of this insistence on balance in the way the issue was being reported. Um, And to, to an extent, we saw this with the Brexit referendum, that outright lies were not challenged. They were simply balanced, in inverted commas, by somebody putting up a different perspective. And what we ended up with in the campaign is a kind of arguments between two sides shouting at each other and no effective um, monitoring or inquisition into what was actually being said. So democracy under threat, I think we've got a pretty weak democracy in the UK. I'm not happy with it. We have a system of first past the post, which means that it's possible for a government to get an overwhelming majority in the parliament, even if they don't really have um, uh, any entitlement to that if you look at raw votes you get a distorted outcome
0: great okay that was the questions we've got some thank yous that i'd like to read out uh laurie schultz uh, simon thank you for a very enlightening discussion on a very complicated multi-layered dispute 2021 is sure to be riveting and then Cheryl Bradley, yes, grateful to hear the perspective of Brexit from somebody who is so well informed and in the thick of it. Knut Peterson, many thanks for speaking to SACPA. It was great hearing your perspective. So um, thank you so much for talking to us from the UK. I wish the UK good luck with Brexit. That comes from Beth Mendel. So thank you very much, Simon. Before we end the live stream, uh, do you have any final parting words for us?
1: Yes, I would like to emphasize that I regret what is happening not only from a British perspective. I regret it more, in fact, from a European perspective. There is no question that Britain, the United Kingdom, leaving the European Union damages the European Union. That, to me, is part of the tragedy of what is happening to this country and to the European Union. I regard myself as a European citizen first. And uh, it, 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 it's extremely worrying to see the way this uh, process has risked bringing a toxicity into the way the United Kingdom uh, is regarded. It's, it's damage everywhere you look. Mm. That's my rather depressing note on which to end. Um, we have to be optimistic. We have to say that in every seriously bad outcome, there has to be a silver lining. And there the may well be. I've been reluctant to be too deterministic about the crystal ball. So what will happen, we simply don't really know, and that's what makes it so interesting to be human. We can uh, speculate, but we won't find out what happens tomorrow until tomorrow has ended.
0: Hmm. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Um, And also thank you you to the people um, um, who are watching this, and apologies about the audio at the beginning. I think turning off the video really seemed to have sorted that. Um our next uh this coming Thursday for our regular SACPA session, we have What Bears Teach Us with Sarah Elmodi um on uh Thursday, December tenth. And the time will be two o'clock. Just to note that this is a different start than our regular s- start. So it'll be at two o'clock mountain time. Thanks very much everybody, and um we'll see you on Thursday.